Hey everyone, this is Victor from Cyborg for Life, and today I have a very special interview for you. He's a very talented and experienced limb lengthening and deformity reconstruction surgeon at the Institute of Orthopedics and Rheumatology at the Mediclinic Winelands Orthopedic Hospital in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Please enjoy the interview with Dr. Franz Burkholz. All right, everyone, today we have a very special guest joining us. He is a member of the Institute of Orthopedics and Rheumatology at the Mediclinic Winelands Orthopedic Hospital in Stellenbosch, South Africa. With over 20 years of experience specializing in correcting leg length discrepancies and complex deformities, he also helps boost the height of his patients seeking cosmetic stature lengthening. With a passion for technology that transforms his patients' problems into happiness, please join me in welcoming world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Franz Burkholz. Dr. B, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Hey, good and, good and you. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I mean, I always like to meet new surgeons from around the world, especially in South Africa. In fact, just the other day, somebody emailed me about you in particular. So I'm glad to have you a part of the, the community. Um, now, before we get into your surgical approaches, uh, you know, to limb lengthening, I want to mention a few of your quali qualifications for prospective patients. So you hail from a family of doctors. You earned your medical degree from the University of Pretoria in 1997. During residency, you, you dived into complex trauma surgery, mastering well-known external, the well-known external fixator frame, the Elizarov, qualifying as an orthopedic surgeon in 2006 with a master's of medicine from the Uni University of Pretoria. As one of the more experienced surgeons in limb lengthening and deformity reconstruction, you have performed over 3,000 Elizarov ring fixator frames and implanted several internal nails during your tenure. With credentials, definitely make your patients feel safe in your care. And now we're going to dive into the world of limb lengthening. So Dr. B, how did you get interested in the field of limb lengthening and deformity reconstruction? Take us back. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on how much time you have. I can keep you busy for a week. <laughs> He's like, well, where do you want to start? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I think, I think it, it, it's basically uh, when I started or when I was a resident in orthopedics, I spent a lot of time in the field of complex trauma. And I realized that the standard orthopedic uh, techniques were not adequate to treat all the aspects um, of complex trauma that we see, especially the complications like the infections, the bone loss, the non-unions and so on. And I soon realized that we need different tools. And that's when I sort of came across the Elizarov method. And uh, just a correction earlier, you said I mastered it. I definitely haven't mastered it, but I have done a lot of them. Um, but uh, yeah, so I delved into that and into the work of, of Ilazarov and the Bastiani and Paley and all the big names out there and, and realized that here is a technique or a technology or a, or a set of techniques really that can help us help our patients better. And over the years, I then um, developed my, my skill in this field and by borrowing and learning from other surgeons, I could um, eventually expand my own knowledge and experience to the level that I can help um, patients that require this, this very specialized uh, set of techniques. Absolutely. And that you have, I know we had conversations earlier about all of your, you know, experience in the field, but also you like to dive into academic research about limb lengthening and about your craft. How important is it for an orthopedic surgeon in your discipline to, you know, kind of align the academic research and what's, you know, happening in the OR? How do you kind of align both of those? Yeah, I think it's critically important. I think um, at at the core, uh, an orthopedic surgeon that's at the pinnacle of his, his or her career um, is both an artist and a scientist. And, and we have to match those two um, aspects of our craft uh, in a way. 
the art part comes in with experience and with uh, a bit of flair and a bit of out-of-the-box thinking. But the research part or the science part comes from research. And, and unless we measure what we do, and unless we measure patients' outcomes, we don't really know that what we're doing is the correct thing. Right. So I believe it's critically important. Now, what is very difficult to do sometimes is to balance your time spent on, on these two. You get guys who write papers all the time, but they do very little clinical work. Right. And you get guys that operate all the time, but they don't really get time to do research. So I probably fall more in the latter component of the spectrum where I tend to spend most of my time on clinical work mm -hmm. and I do spend some time on research, not nearly enough, but I do believe it's critically important to have that balance uh, in our field somehow. Absolutely. Very good. Uh, now, Dr. Burkholz, where is your practice located in South Africa? Is it because I know you mentioned you Pretoria and Stellenbosch, but for patients who are actually looking to find a limb lengthening surgeon in that part of the globe, where exactly are you located? Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question. Again, with a complex and long answer. Um, to put it simply, I'm in transition at the moment, and I am um, moving my practice or a part of my practice over to the Stellenbosch area uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of them being that I'm joining the or I have joined the Institute of Orthopedics and Rheumatology which is a specialist institute located in a beautiful part of the world. Uh, we have high level um, um, multidisciplinary team involved. We have um, an excellent hospital. So the, the nursing care, everything is, is top notch. So from a patient's perspective, I believe that we're giving a very high end product by aligning ourselves with that hospital. Having said that, I have many years and the vast majority of my time I've spent in Pretoria and I still run a very busy practice there. And we, uh, of course, have our partners there and our multidisciplinary teams and our hospitals that we're aligned with. So we still do a lot of work there. But I think if we're looking to the future and somebody wants to sort of start research, researching, having the surgery with me, it would be beneficial to look at the Stellenbosch option because that's likely going to be the long-term option. Um, if a patient presents with a leg length discrepancy of, say, four centimeters with, you know, a malunion along their lower tibia, would you prefer to use the typical Ilazara fixator or an internal lengthening now? And if you do go with the external fixator, how long would they need to wear it before removal? Or does it depend on the patient case? Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, case example that could show you a surgeon's thought process. And I'm sure that's why you selected this case, yes. <laughs> uh, because it's not as simple as it sounds. Right. Um, it's the tibia is a problematic bone. It's a bone that when it uh, does break, it gives us all kinds of problems. If it heals, it often heals with a malunion and it heals in a short uh, position like the case you explained. Yep. But very often together with that, there is a deformity. And it's, it's very seldom that you would have a purely length problem in this instance. You would often have a slight malalignment as mm -hmm. well. And to take that into consideration, one needs to, or, or, or to plan this case properly, one needs to take that into consideration. But in broad terms, uh, for a tibia, I would choose external fixation. Mm -hmm. I would probably not use an Elizarov device in its purest form. I would use a derivative of that in the form of a hexapod circular external fixator, which gives us the advantage of doing advanced planning and correction using uh, computer software. Um, the... Uh, 
getting into the technical details, the tibia broke at the bottom and the malunion is at the bottom of the tibia, yeah. um, but the length discrepancy is best addressed at the top of the tibia. So okay. uh, if it's a pure length discrepancy, the osteotomy would be at the top and you would have a fibular osteotomy together with that and you would do a simple lengthening. Okay. More often than not, one can address some of the alignment issues through that same osteotomy. Mm-hmm. Very occasionally, the deformity might be so bad distally that you would need a second osteotomy at the bottom yeah. to actually correct that. The problem with that then is that you can't add length there yeah. uh, reliably. Yeah. So you would then have to have a proximal osteotomy for length and a distal one for realignment. So it gets complex very quickly. And, and this is where it's important to have a surgeon that has seen these things and done these things yeah. uh, to be able to anticipate what could potentially go wrong and what are the best ways to solve this. To circle back to your initial question, how long the fixator would have to be on, the equation is actually very simple. It's about one and a half months for every centimeter of length gained um, in the average adult population. Um, So that would mean about six months in the fixator. I normally add another month or two when I'm counseling my patients just to make sure that if things go a bit slower, that we're still in that ballpark. So I would tell a patient six to nine months, uh, give or take. Um, and that should give us a relatively reliable and accurate answer. Now, regarding cosmetic stature lengthening patients who want to get taller, what is your thoughts on safe lengthening limits? Because we know that each bone segment kind of has like a, a threshold where things start to get really tight. And a lot of patients want to kind of shoot for that max length because they want to, you know, get their money's worth and, you know, get as tall as they can. You as a surgeon who's been doing this for years, what are your thoughts on for the, the femurs and then the tibias as well? Yeah, I think, um, again, the the answer is more complex than it seems at face value. I think if we we want a pragmatic, easy answer, then in my mind, the safe limit for a femur is about six and a half centimeters, and a safe limit for a tibia is probably about four, four and a half centimeters. Um, I have no idea what that is in inches, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm metrically trained, so, uh, so so my brain doesn't think in inches, but uh, but realistically, that's about the limits that that are, if you ask me what is safe, that is what is safe in my mind. Now, the majority of patients that come and see me have the opportunity to do a lengthening once. They don't don't have the opportunity to come back for a second set of lengthening, uh, whether it's from work perspectives or um, just simply the travel or the cost. Uh, so if you had to ch- choose one single lengthening and you can only afford one single lengthening, I would shoot for internal femur lengthenings and then push that limit a little bit upwards of that maximum and see if we can get to maybe seven or eight. But we know, and the patient also knows when I have this discussion with them, that we are pushing the envelope. And there is a chance that we might not get there, that we will only get to about six or six and a half. Now, is there, is there a threshold that you've seen that where complications are more common for each of these bone segments? Because I know that people say that beyond, you know, at other clinics in the world, they use a lot of the external fixators where they can kind of go beyond that eight centimeter max with a lot of the internal lengthening nails. You as a surgeon, where is that? that threshold that you say, hey, look, there's going to be a definite complication, you know, that can happen there um, for the femur or the tibia. So patients can really hear it from an expert like yourself. Yeah, I think what makes it difficult is it's so individual and it's so dependent on the starting height, the starting length of the, of, of the limb, the flexibility of the soft tissues, you know, all of these things 
come into play. The issue is not the bone. We can lengthen bone almost unlimited as long as the fixation doesn't uh, fall apart. Uh, the issue is the soft tissue and, and specifically the tendons and the nerves um, because those are the ones that limit us generally. Um, also, it's not a clear cut cutoff where we say up to this point it's safe and then beyond that it becomes unsafe. It's almost a, a curve that runs and then becomes vertical at some point where, where the complication rate accelerates, you know, almost like an exponential curve. So in my mind, you know, in a femur up to about six, we're relatively safe. In a tibia, probably about three and a half, three point eight, somewhere around there. Uh, you're still on the flat part of the curve, and then it starts tapering up. And in certain individuals, that, that up, upswing becomes quite vertical, and, and the complication rate rises very rapidly. Um, and the complications are things like tightness of the joints, uh, tightness of the nerves, and, and nerve damage. And, and we certainly don't want permanent nerve damage uh, if we're doing cosmetic surgery. You know? So um, I know, you know a patient might come back and say, but that's their choice. They can decide whether they want that or not. I think we also, we're, we're in a healthcare team together, me and the patient, and we need to come up with a solution that's as safe as possible. And in my mind, that's, that's sort of where that lies. But, but there's no clear cut answer. It really depends on the individual and the starting length. Ironically, somebody that starts at a higher height will have lower complications at the six centimeter mark than somebody that starts at a lower height. So the person who needs it the most, ironically would be the one that will have the highest potential risk at a lower lengthening rate, um, number. Now, if there was a patient who said, look, Dr. B, I want to get max length. I want to get as tall as I possibly can. And I'm willing to do the thresholds you have in place, the six, six and a half on the femur. And I want to come back for quadrilateral lengthening and do the tibia. Um, how would you stage the lengthening uh, um, of each bone segment? Would you say, hey, look, let's do it a year apart? Or would you say a couple months is good? What's the ideal time frame in between the lengthenings? <clears throat> I think, look, I know, um, you know, the masters in the field provide uh, and, and, you know, Dr. Paley is probably one of the, well, he is at the moment, probably the prominent surgeon in the world in this field. Um, and he's got, got a whole package set out how you can do a quadrilateral in a shorter period of time. In my simple hands, this process is brutal and, and the patient needs a massive amount of recovery, a massive amount of nutrition. They need uh, pain control, they need physiotherapy. It's not an easy surgery to get over. And for that reason, I would want to stage them as far apart as possible um, to allow almost full recovery in between surgeries. And that in my mind doesn't happen within a year. So, so I would think about 12 months would be a safe zone, if you will. Um, of course, that, that limits the amount of patients that will have it. Uh, that's fine. You know, I, I think we, we're looking for end result. And, you know, if you are going to embark on this sort of surgery, uh, you mustn't look at the short-term goals. You mustn't look at the short-term price. You need to look at the long-term goal and long-term safety because this reconstruction needs to stand you in good stead for the rest of your, your life. And in all likelihood, whoever is doing it is probably in their 20s and 30s, which means they're about a third to a quarter of the way through their life. So the biggest part of their life is ahead of them. And, um, you know, we're getting into the psychological aspect now, but a lot of people do this or inquire about this because of dating reasons or sexuality reasons. And um, 
unfortunately, sexuality makes up a very short portion of our adult life. You know, the majority of our life we spend um, not looking for a mate anymore. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, it's just the sad truth of life, man. But uh, <laughs> the, the reality is that the benefit of this surgery is going to be, um, you know, in a way you have to measure uh, the potential risk you're taking to the potential benefit. Uh, you know, uh, and I, I'm probably not expressing myself well, but, uh, but I think real, realistically, um, you know, as safe as possible, um, which means in my mind, probably separating them a significant time apart. Uh, maybe the absolute minimum six months or so, but definitely not shorter than that. Not okay. in my mind. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And that's kind of like you said, aligns with a lot of the top surgeons, what they say too, for safety. And I love your, your approach, safety first. That's very cool. Now, this is kind of a weird question that a patient asked uh, for me to ask you, and it's about feet size and their new height. So he was asking if he wears a size six and a half inch shoe, uh, shoes at his height of five foot eight, um, if he does quadrilateral lengthening and, you know, achieves the five inches, can his six and a half inch foot size still handle his new six foot one height or does his foot size have enough surf surface area to handle the pressure when he's doing things like sprinting jumping and all these other biomechanical activities yeah it's a very it's a very interesting um question and uh, i don't think a lot of people in the world have given it a lot of thought to be honest um i might make a wrong assumption here but uh the reality is we, we do not have the technology available to safely lengthen the whole foot to a new size. So, so considering that off the table, we have to accept that there will be a biomechanical disadvantage with a relatively smaller foot to a relatively longer stature. Having said that, we are meddling with that anyway with a stature lengthening in terms of the ratios between upper body, lower body, um, femur length versus tibia length, uh, height of the knees, um, length of the muscles, you know, all of these things come into play when we're talking about high level athletic performance. And, you know, I am of the opinion that, um, and that might be contrary to some of my colleagues in the field's opinion, that whenever we're doing a cosmetic lengthening, we are sacrificing a certain percentage of high performance, athletic performance. You know, that's just a given. And especially if it's a stature, stature lengthening or a cosmetic lengthening. If it's a post-traumatic, it's a bit different because the muscles and the nerves were at that original length initially. Trauma destroyed that, but then you, you're just going back to what you were initially made to be. With stature lengthening, we're changing that fundamentally. We're actually going beyond what nature intended for that body to be. And that puts a lot of strain on nerves, muscles, and mechanics. So in a way, I think we're fiddling with that anyway. I think the foot size is the least of our worries, to be honest, if we're adding 10 centimeters to somebody's height. Dr. B, when it comes to complications, neuropathies, like you said earlier, nerve issues can pose serious impacts on post-operative fun functionality. And so if a patient experiences nerve irritation during their lengthening process, could this be a warning of more, a more severe problem that's gonna come up? And if so, what do you think it might be? Yeah, I think that is one of the danger signs that I use to, um, to alert me to the fact that things are um, potentially uh, in a danger situation. Um, so tingling, um, sensation, uh, what we call paresthesia, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, now, I have to qualify that because a lot of lengthening patients get that anyway. 
to a certain extent. So what we're talking about is when that sensation doesn't go away, it's permanent, it's turning across into pain rather than just a feeling of, of um, abnormal sensation. That's when we really get worried. Now, we almost routinely give um, nerve-modifying drugs, uh, something called Lyrica uh, or Neureka. Um, I'm not sure what it's known as in your neck of the woods, but it's a, it's a medication that we tend to give for um, phantom limb pain after amputation. So it's a pretty strong um, modifier of the nerve-related pains and things like that. Generally, we, we add that almost routinely, but if that doesn't control the symptoms, then I know we're in for a rough ride and we need to, to then look at the nerve as a limiting factor for our lengthening. We would then continue with our intensive physiotherapy and try and focus on nerve stretches and nerve mobilizations. Uh, the next step, if it doesn't improve, would be to slow down our distraction rate slightly. Um, of course, we can only slow it down that a certain amount before we run into premature consolidation risk again from the bones perspective. So it needs a bit of juggling and a bit of experience from your surgeon's side to do that safely. Um, and then in, in the, the real extreme cases, we might actually have the discussion that we may need to stop the lengthening uh, altogether uh, if the nerve really becomes a, a big problem. Um, having said that, on the femoral distractions, nerve-related issues are rarer than on the tibia. And generally, we haven't had the need to really stop a lengthen, lengthening based on nerve alone. So, so that is reassuring in a certain sense. What is critically important is that the surgeon who performs the surgery needs to see these patients at a regular interval. Not his nurse, not his physiotherapist, not his assistant, the surgeon himself should be involved in the treatment. I think that is sometimes um, in the business side of our field that, that falls by the wayside. I firmly believe from an ethical point of view that the surgeon who performs the surgery takes the responsibility and they should be involved in that treatment process uh, throughout. Yes, of course, we use our multidisciplinary team and we use, but in my mind, at least every second week, the surgeons should see that patient personally and do an examination, have a look at the x-rays, have a look at what's happening so that if something starts going wrong, that the person who's responsible can ultimately act on that responsibility and prevent further complications. So I think that's critically important. Another thing that patients are really worried about is de developing a pulmonary embolism. What type of prophylactic measures do you put in place to kind of ensure patient safety during the lengthening process? I think I'm going to, sorry, I'm extending this interview a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, but I think I'm going to take a bit of a step back and, and just uh, clarify two concepts because I've, I've seen that people often confuse the two things. There's, there's something called fat embolism syndrome and there's something called pulmonary embolism syndrome. And I think it's important to distinguish between the two. Um, the, the one concept, fat embolism syndrome, is a term that we use uh, for a condition that happens in young people that typically have femur fractures or femur osteotomies. And it can happen after tibial surgery as well, um, where the lungs struggle to deal with the inflammatory cascade that gets released by this massive surgery. In simple terms, we call it fat droplets in the blood. It may or may not be exactly true, but essentially there's a result of this massive surgery or this massive trauma that ends up constricting the little blood vessels in the lungs, and that is what we call fat embolism syndrome. This is typically treated by oxygenation, 
Um, everybody is an expert on ventilation nowadays after COVID, so um, <laughs> it's basically respiratory support that needs to be given. And that is a very rare complication, but it is something we see from time to time. And it is something that can be deadly in individuals. So that is the one thing. And the way to prevent that is to not have the surgery. Um, that is unfortunately not something that is easily preventable. And we, by the grace of God, go forward and hope that we never see that complication in its most serious form, because it can be deadly. Um, and, and that is, I think, something that people undergoing the surgery need to fundamentally understand that this is not a walk in the park. This is something that has risk attached to it. Even though you might choose the best surgeon in the world, we are genetically programmed to have complications or not. And to a certain extent, that is something that's out of our control. So that's the first one, that's fat embolism syndrome. If it's picked up early enough, we can normally support the patient through the process and they survive and they, they go on to live a long and healthy life. The other one is called um, pulmonary embolism or thromboembolism. And this is a related to blood clots that form in the deep vessels, the deep blood vessels in the lower limb or in the pelvis. And they come loose from, from that clot and they shoot to the lungs and cause a pulmonary embolism. And that's something that can also be deadly in its most extreme forms. And this is something that we see a little bit more commonly and it's certainly associated with hip and knee replacement surgery. Um, it can be associated with um, limb lengthening and especially bilateral limb lengthenings. And um, yeah, the, 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 the percentage rate is quite low, but if it does happen, it is quite severe. In my practice, I um, encourage active mobilization as soon as possible. So day one after the surgery, we kick the patient out of the bed and we get them up and going. It might not mean full weight bearing, but it will certainly mean movement and mobilization. And that's one of the ways to prevent that. Another way to prevent that is through drugs. And we use routinely uh, low um, molecular weight heparin, something like Clexane, um, initially intra in, in the hospital. And then beyond discharge after hospital, we use a similar regimen than what they do for hip and knee replacements, uh, which is a newer drug called Xarelto, which we do for a month afterwards, which generally covers the patients for both this first and the second peaks of potential um, uh, thromboembolism after surgery. Um, but I think that is quite important to, to cover them for about 30 days after surgery with some form of medical intervention for thromboembolism. Sorry, long-winded answer for a, for a question. <laughs> no, I, I think that's very important that you did uh, distinguish between the two, fat embolism and pulmonaryism, because a lot of these people, they don't know what that means, but um, they're both worrisome complications, even though the percentages are low. But the fact that you could explain that like that and you have prophylactic measures in place to keep their safety at top of mind is going to be very, very helpful. Now, Dr. Burkholz, you're very passionate about lengthening technology that helps your patients achieve their lengthening goals and fix their problems. Now, with lengthening devices like the Fitbone and Precise Internal Nail, this can be done minimally invasive. Um, in your expertise, which of these two nails is more reliable at lengthening? And I don't want to get you in trouble with the companies, but you're free to speak here on my channel. So go at it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm free to speak. I don't get paid by any of those companies uh, to promote the nails. So um, full disclosure, I have been on educational contracts for both of these companies. Um, and uh, with Orthofix, the footbone makers, I am on... Um, 
consultancy agreement uh, for uh, their external fixation products. So just to, to put that out there. But um, but yeah, so I'm not getting paid to promote any any nail or any any device, and I don't really want to get in there. Um, since I'm not getting royalties, I, I, don't, I don't want to put my neck out. Um, the, the reality is that both these devices are good devices. I think both of these have um, a really good track record. I think the Fitbone, not I think, the Fitbone has been around longer. Um, it has been around uh, in Europe for a, actually quite a long time, since 1997, I believe. Um, but it was only available to a select few surgeons and it was very um, tightly controlled who could use that and they had to have very specific training and so on, which I think in a way has served the nail in the product very well because it was only really done by experienced surgeons. On the other hand, it hasn't made it very popular and very well known. Um, it's only recently that it obtained FDA approval uh, formally and for that reason, it's only been available in the States more recently. Um, the Precise Nail, obviously a newer product, but it's had a wider marketing um, drive. And in a way, um, that has also been its downfall to a certain extent, um, as we've seen with the uh, stride and with the temporary withdrawal from the market and so on. So both of these have their, let's call it peculiarities. From a perspective of just finding a nail that works, both of them work very well. Both of them are reliable products. And, you know, if done properly by the surgeon behind them, um, they will work well. Think of it like a hammer and a nail, you know, that you, that you build a cabinet with. You know, the hammer you use and the nail you use is probably less important than the cabinet maker that holds the hammer and holds the nail, right? Um, and, and this is the same analogy. I think the surgeon behind the tool is probably more important than the tool itself, to be honest. And that surgeon needs to understand that tool very well and be able to use it. Now, to, 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 to come back to your question, um, in my hands, I've done more precise nails than fit by nails, simply because precise has been more available to me in the past. I am quite excited about the fit bone in the sense that it is made from a stronger material. And presumably that would allow better weight-bearing capacity. That is offset again by the fact that it only has one locking screw at the bottom, um, which as opposed to the precise nail. Uh, you know, so in a way, in my mind at this stage, it, it's, it's a two-horse race and these two horses are pretty much equal. Um, so if I had to have a cosmetic lengthening, I would find it very difficult to choose between the two products. And I would probably leave that up to my surgeon to decide. Okay. All right. So, you, so they can do the job equally the same. So the patient probably won't notice the difference. I think 